2 Kings 6, starting verse 24 through the end of chapter 7. Afterward, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, mustered his entire army and went up and besieged Samaria. And there was a great famine in Samaria as they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and the fourth part of a cab of dove's dung for five shekels of silver. Now as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him, saying, Help my lord, O king. And he said, If the lord will not help you, how shall I help you? From the threshing floor or from the winepress? And the king asked her, What is your trouble? She answered, This woman said to me, Give your son that we may eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. So he boiled my son and ate him. And on the next day I said to her, Give your son that we may eat him. But she has hidden her son. When the king heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes. And he was passing by on the wall. And the people looked, and behold, he had sackcloth beneath on his body. And he said, May God do so to me, and more also, if the head of Elisha the son of Shaphat remains on his shoulders today. Elisha was sitting in his house, and the elders were sitting with him. Now the king had dispatched a man from his presence, but before the messenger arrived, Elisha said to the elders, Do you see how this murderer has sent to take off my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold the door fast against him. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? And while he was still speaking with them, the messenger came down to him and said, This trouble is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? But Elisha said, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Tomorrow about this time a seah of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel, and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Then the captain on whose hand the king leaned said to the man of God, If the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? But he said, You shall shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. Now there were four men who were lepers at the entrance to the gate, and they said to one another, Why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, Let us enter the city, the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. And if we sit here, we die also. So now come, let us go over to the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, we shall live, and if they kill us, we shall but die. So they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. But when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. For the Lord had made the had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and of horses, the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come against us. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses and their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was, and fled for their lives. And when these lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into a tent and ate and drank, and they carried off silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. Then they came back and entered another tent and carried off things from it and went and hid them. Then they said to one another, We are not doing right. This day is the day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now therefore come, let us go and tell the king's household. So they came and called to the gatekeepers of the city and told them, We came to the camp of the Syrians, and behold, there was no one to be seen or heard there, nothing but the horses tied and the donkeys tied and the tents as they were. Then the gatekeepers called out, and it was told within the king's household. And the king rose in the night and said to his servants, I will tell you what the Syrians have done to us. They know that we are hungry. Therefore, they have gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the open country, thinking, when they come out of the city, we shall take them alive and get into the city. And one of his servants said, Let some men take 
five of the remaining horses, seeing that those who are left here will fare like the whole multitude of Israel who have already perished. Let us send and see. So they took two horsemen, and the king sent them after the army of the Syrians, saying, Go and see. So they went after them as far as the Jordan, and behold, all the way was littered with garments and equipment that the Syrians had thrown away in their haste. And the messengers returned and told the king. Then the people went out and plundered the camp of the Syrians. So a seah of fine flour was sold for a shekel, and two seahs of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. Now the king had appointed the captain on whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gate. And the people trampled him in the gate so that he died, as the man of God had said when the king came down to him. For when the man of God had said to the king, Two seahs of barley shall be sold for a shekel, and a seah of fine flour for a shekel, about this time tomorrow in the gate of Samaria, the captain had answered the man of God, If the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could such a thing be? And he said, You shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. And so it happened to him. For the people trampled him in the gate, and he died. This is not anyone's go-to passage for Mother's Day. On any day, but especially on Mother's Day, who wants to think about a mom boiling and eating her son? It's a sickening and true story. Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, laid siege to Samaria. The famine was so bad that moms resorted to cannibalism. The king of Israel blamed God's prophet off with his head. But Elisha had good news for God's people. In 24 hours, everyone would eat their fill. Everyone, that is, except for one person, the captain. And chapter 7 ends with this captain being trampled to death in the gate. This passage teaches us a simple but profound truth. It's a truth that God's desperate people need to hear at any time and any place. And the point is this. God is faithful to his word. God is faithful to his word. He always keeps his promise. It was obviously the worst of times for Samaria. Look with me again at the rations and the runaway inflation in verse 25. It says, And there was a great famine in Samaria as they besieged it, until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and the fourth part of a cab of dove's dung for five shekels of silver. Now, what would they do with a donkey's head? My, my father-in-law and brothers-in-law are hunters. They love, to, they love when deer season comes around. And when, when they shoot a nice buck, they will often mount the deer's head. The people of Samaria weren't mounting donkey heads in their living room. They were eating them, donkey heads. And doves dung, were they eating it? Were they using it for fuel? Or was doves dung a nickname for some kind of inedible food? Think the hardtack, think about the hardtack during, during Civil War, which was called worm castles. Maybe it was a nickname like that, doves dung. We don't really know, but you get the picture. This is an awful situation in Samaria. Now, if you have your Bible, you should see a footnote in verse 25. It says that a shekel was about 11 grams, and a cob, cab, was about one quart. In today's silver market, a donkey's head would have cost something like $750. One cup, think of 
the measuring cups in your kitchen, one cup of Dove's dung, whatever that was, would have cost something like $50. And that's not nearly as bad as what comes next. We see in verse, verses 26 to 29, Now as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him, saying, Help, my lord, O king. And he said, If the Lord will not help you, how shall I help you? From the threshing floor or from the winepress? And the king asked her, What is your trouble? She answered, This woman said to me, Give your son that we may eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. And on the next day I said to her, Give your son that we may eat him. But she has hidden her son. Do you remember 2 Kings 2? That was a, a few, maybe a few months ago when I preached on 2 Kings 2 and the she-bears, the she-bears that came out of the woods. A mob of young teens came out of the city of Bethel to mock Elisha. He cursed them and two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of them. Now, if you remember, I made the point in that sermon that the bears were no coincidence. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Leviticus 26. We'll read in verse 22. But in the first part of the chapter, God God promises blessings for those who obey. The heading in my Bible is blessings for obedience. So to respond to God's covenant in faith and obedience is to be blessed. What happens if God's people don't obey? What happens if they don't listen, if they respond in unbelief? Well, that's what the second part of this chapter in Leviticus 26, that's what it's about. Look with me at verses 21 and 22. Then if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins, and I will let loose the wild beasts against you. I will let loose the wild beasts against you. So in 2 Kings 2, the, the, the bears weren't a coincidence. They were a consequence. God promised that he would discipline and judge his people with wild beasts. Now, if you're following along in Leviticus 26, hop down a few verses to verse 27. Leviticus 26, verse 27. But if in spite of this you will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury, and I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. You shall eat the flesh of your sons, and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. The cannibalism in this, in this passage, 2 Kings 6, is no coincidence. It's a consequence. God promised that he would discipline and judge his people in this way if they persisted in their sin. So what does this situation in, in Samaria teach us? It teaches us that God always keeps his word. God's faithful to his promises. Now this might surprise you, but it's, it's true. We can be sure that God will do whatever he says. And he's not only faithful to his promises to bless, he's also faithful to his promises to curse, to judge. The result is this truly awful situation in Samaria. As I was studying this, I, I thought of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Question 17 asks, Into what estate did the fall bring mankind? Into what estate, condition, situation did the fall bring mankind? And the answer is, 
the fall brought mankind into an estate of sin and misery. What we see in these verses is horrifying sin and misery. Let me, let me focus in on two, two examples. First, think about what the woman has done. This is the revolting heart of, of sin. Sin at its, at its worst. Sin says, me first. My needs before yours. And a mom actually kills and eats her son to keep herself alive. But then, then she complains about injustice. The woman who boiled and ate her son complains about the wrong done to her. Think about that. Isn't that also the nature of sin? We overlook our own egregious sins and cry out, I'm the victim. We see that right here in our passage. And not only in this passage, but in the world around us. This this tragic situation made me think about abortion in our country today. Made me think about all of those other evils that we're seeing. Sin leaves in its wake dead, abandoned, and abused children. We see that here in Samaria. The Bible doesn't overlook these mind-numbing atrocities. The Bible alone, in fact, can explain why such things ever happened in the first place. Into what a state did the fall bring mankind? In a state of sin and misery. So we've looked at what this woman does and says. Also look with me at what the king says. He says in verse 31, May God do so to me, and more also, if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. What does the king do? How does he respond to this this situation? He blames God's prophet and orders his death. The text doesn't exactly tell us why he wanted to kill Elisha, but we can imagine, we can imagine that Elisha would have relayed God's message to the king. We can imagine that Elisha, God's prophet, would have at some point said something like, O king, this siege, this famine, even this cannibalism, is a consequence of sin. You, the king of Israel, are leading God's people in apostasy. Symbolic sackcloth won't do. You need to repent. We can imagine that Elisha would have communicated with the king. And the king obviously didn't like this message. He chose to shoot the messenger instead of listening. Isn't this what the Jews, isn't this how the Jews responded to Jesus? Jesus began his ministry with this message. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. But unbelievers would rather kill Jesus, the Son of God, than repent of their sins. This is also why the world persecutes Christians. We proclaim the offensive message that Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. But unbelievers would rather cancel Christians than bow their knees to the King of Kings. The world has Christians in its crosshairs. And to what a state did the fall bring mankind? In a state of sin and misery. So this text, when you think about it, it tells an awful story that's true to life. It's a picture of people in desperate need of deliverance. 
makes me think of a quote from one American author who wrote, the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. The mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. Well, sometimes as we see here, it's not so quiet. A woman cries out. But apart from Christ, desperation is the last and final word for, for men and women, for boys and girls. Apart from Christ, that's it. Desperation. The fall brought me, the fall brought all of us into a, into a state of sin and misery. We were a people in desperate need of deliverance. So what do we see in this passage? Elisha promises deliverance. It's exactly what he promises. He says in chapter 7, verse 1, Tomorrow, about this time, a seah of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel, and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Now, maybe you've heard the, the modern-day proverb that, that goes like this. Desperate times call for desperate measures. Well, desperate times in this passage call for faith. Desperate times call for faith. What is faith? It's believing God's promises. It's believing. It's taking hold of God's promises and saying, yes, I believe. I'm starving. I can't see food anywhere. Elisha, this word, this promise seems too good to be true. But I believe. I believe. Now, does the captain respond in faith? This is the guy in verse, 20, in verse 33 who said, This trouble is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? Then in verse 2, he responds to Elisha and says, If the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? Does that sound like faith to you? Elisha certainly didn't think so. Elisha says, You shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. Starting in verse 3, the rest of the chapter tells how God, to the T, fulfills his promise. He keeps his word. So this story of deliverance begins with four lepers, four unlikely outcasts of society. Four lepers reason among themselves that their chances of survival are better with the Syrians. So they go at twilight, and they go to the empty camp, the enemy camp and find it empty. Everyone's gone. Now, in my previous sermon, if you were here last time, you'll remember that God made the invisible visible. Elisha prayed that his panicky servant would see God's angelic army all around them. There are more with us than with our enemies. And the servant saw. He saw the mountain full of horses and chariots of fire. I wonder, we're not told exactly, but I wonder if the angelic army that one man saw is now the angelic army that the Syrians hear. One man saw the invisible, and now the Syrians perhaps hear the invisible. And here's what we read in verse 6. For the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and of horses, chariots and horses, the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come against us. So God saved the day. 
He delivered his people just as he promised. And who got first dibs on his, on his grace? Who got first dibs? Four lepers. This is not the first time that God's blessing has come to lepers. A few chapters ago, do you remember Naaman? God is a God who showers his blessing on the unclean. The four lepers here aren't healed, but their lives are spared. They eat and drink. They carry off silver, gold, and clothing. And to top it all off, they become the bearers of of this good news. God chooses lepers to be his evangelists in this story. In verse 9, they say to one another, We are not doing right. This day is the day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now therefore come, let us go and tell the king's household. So their consciences are pricked. Ever since we studied the conscience, I'm more alert to conscience sightings in the Bible. Well, here's one of them. The the lepers have a conscience, and it's pricked. Hey, this is a day of good news. Let's go tell others. And they do. They tell the gatekeepers, who tell the king, and he was skeptical. Guys, I wasn't born yesterday. I know what the Syrians are doing. I'm not going to fall for this bait. And just like Naaman's servants persuaded him to go wash in the Jordan. So here again, a servant persuades someone proud, someone high, someone lofty to go and and do something. And this servant, whoever he is, this nameless servant persuades the king to take a look. Sure enough, the lepers were telling the truth. And now listen, listen to how this passage ends. I want to read, starting in verse 16 once again, Listen for what's emphasized. Listen for the, the, the drumbeat, the, the focus. So starting in verse 16. Then the people went out and plundered the camp of the Syrians. So a seah of fine flour was sold for a shekel, and two seahs of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. Now the king had appointed the captain on whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gate. And the people trampled him in the gate so that he died as the man of God had said when the king came down to him. For when the man of God had said to the king, two seahs of barley shall be sold for a shekel and a seah of fine flour for a shekel about this time tomorrow in the gate of Samaria, the captain had answered the man of God, if the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could such a thing be? And he had said, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. And so it happened to him, for the people trampled him in the gate and he died. Do you hear the simple but profound truth? God always, always, always keeps his word. He's faithful to every one of his promises. Now notice, this is not only good news, it's also bad news. This is bad news for those like the captain who persist in unbelief. What does God promise for those who refuse to believe his word? What will happen to the person who never comes to Christ? God promises death, judgment, and hell for all of eternity. We find that promise in many places in God's word, but we're studying the book of John. Jesus once says in the book of John, An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil the resurrection of judgment. 
That's what God promises. Now, I find it ironic in a, in a very sad way that the captain says to Elisha, if the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? What's ironic is how the word windows is used elsewhere in the Bible or in the Old Testament. For example, it is used to describe God's blessing that falls down, but it all, it's also used to describe God's curse that falls down. In Noah's day, what opened up on the wicked people? The windows of heaven. Could this thing be, the captain asks, and what falls on his head is not blessing, but curse. What makes the difference? What decides whether blessing or curse will fall on us, you, anyone? As we see in this passage, the difference is faith. The difference is believing God's word. Elisha promised that God would provide deliverance. And that deliverance, like every other deliverance in the Old Testament, is pointing forward. It's a shadow. It's a mini deliverance pointing forward to a greater deliverance. The greatest deliverance of all. God did not leave us in our state of sin and misery. God kept his promises and sent Jesus, his son, to be our redeemer. The Messiah entered our estate, our condition, our situation of sin and misery. As a man, Jesus never once doubted his father's word. We're talking about faith in this passage. Jesus had faith, trust. And then he did what neither Elisha nor any other Old Testament prophet could do. He bore our sins on the cross. Jesus took the place of sinners he had come to save. And the windows of heaven were opened up in judgment and wrath on Jesus as he hung on the cross. Elisha couldn't die in our place, but Jesus did. Faithful to his word then, Jesus rose from the grave. He ascended to heaven and one day he will come again. And until that day, what does he promise? That everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. So today is the day of deliverance. We are God's people here. But if you are not a Christian, or if someone later is listening to this sermon and is not a Christian, know that Jesus keeps his word. If you believe him, then he promises he will deliver from sin and misery. That's what Jesus promises. But you must believe his word. You must believe his word or you will fare much worse than the captain did. If you don't believe, then one day you will see with your own eyes, but not eat of it. God is faithful to his word. This is bad news for some, but this is incredibly good news for us, for God's people. This is good news. We have believed in Jesus Christ. He has delivered us. He is delivering us. And one day he will deliver us, past, present, future. We have come to him in faith and we have received him. We have received Christ. And this doesn't mean by any means that life will be easy. It doesn't mean that sin and misery are, are gone. No, we are called to participate in the sufferings of Christ. That's 
very clear. Our lives on this earth will always involve desperate times. I think each one of us, in our own way, is experiencing some kind of desperation, some kind of desperate time. We will always need, in other words, we will always need to believe God's promises, however unlikely or however unseen they may be. And this is why we need to hear this simple but profound truth once again. God is faithful to his word. He always keeps his promises. So, as we think about God's promises, there are so many in the Bible. Will God provide what you need? And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. For some of you, may, you may be wondering, will God provide what I need? Tomorrow, will God provide what I need? And my God will supply every need of yours. Every need. Will God be with you? You might be wondering that. Will God be with me? Is he with me? God says, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Will God guide you? As you're thinking about the future, this week, tomorrow, tonight, will God guide you? The Lord is your shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. Will God forgive you? Sometimes that's a promise that we have trouble believing. Will God forgive me and my... He is faithful. Sorry, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Will God bring you to heaven? People you know who have died in the Lord, will God bring them to heaven? Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. We could go on and on. God's word is filled with promises. But desperate times call for faith. Desperate times call for faith. What promises, which promises of God are holding you up today? Which promises of God will comfort and strengthen you tomorrow? This week? Christian, God is faithful to his word. He always keeps his promises. He will do just what he has said. Amen.